0: Heavenly Father, pour out the abundance of thy blessing upon Mike. We pray that what thou hast placed on his heart may come forth now from his mouth and find its rightful place in our hearts. May we grow in our understanding that we are to worship thee with everything we have. And we pray, O God, this day in the name of thy Son, Jesus that's not entirely fair is it (laughs) I'm not Father Michael I can't hit the 120 seconds and you probably prefer his subject to mine but I'll do the best I can Um, last year the Stewardship Commission the Parish Council and Father Michael began an effort to reframe stewardship as financial worship worshiping God with our money now as part of this reframing as you may have noticed Father Michael has put significantly more emphasis on the offertory as an act of worship and not just an act of collection, and that helps. Every parish council meeting now includes some discussion of how we as a church can improve our financial worship. And this year, beginning today, we are launching a more organized and timely stewardship as financial worship campaign. My job is to open up the subject. Praveen will share the numbers and his perspective on them at coffee hour, and every member of our church family will receive a full packet of all the information uh, next weekend. And for the first time, we hope to complete our stewardship financial worship campaign before the final budget is prepared in November. Now, the Gospels have a great deal to say about money and our finances. ACNA Bishop, uh, the Mid-Atlantic Bishop, John Guernsey, He notes, for example, that Jesus talked more about money than any other subject except the kingdom of God. Now, even though we have made a start, we still don't match his example. Money talk in church still makes us uncomfortable. We are still learning how to do it well, and we certainly don't discuss it often enough. Not getting money in church right is a serious spiritual mistake, and the reason we are trying so hard to properly reframe the subject. Money and how we use it to either draw closer to God or to push him away is too important to be left in the closet and too dangerous to our souls not to better integrate it into our church life. The first step is, of course, to look at our financial behavior through a biblical lens and especially to read ourselves into the New Testament narrative. The modern church approach is often shockingly unbiblical. Instead of seeing money and pledging behavior both individually and as a community, as an important method of drawing closer to God, the church often behaves like a business and adopts the language of business instead of the language of worship. Budgets are necessary and useful. We use them, we need them, but they are not the point. The point is to love the Lord our God with all your heart and mind and strength and in all areas of our lives. Listen for just a second to a couple of my Peanuts friends, Shermy and Charlie Brown. Shermy, I've got this whole Santa Claus thing licked, Charlie Brown. If there is a Santa Claus, he's going to be too nice not to bring me something for Christmas no matter how I act. Right? Right? And if there isn't a Santa Claus and I really haven't lost anything, right? Charlie Brown. Wrong. But I don't know where. (laughs) What's wrong is that the linkage between our life with money and our life in Christ is often broken or seriously frayed. It's not that we aren't generous with our money. We are. Look what happens every time there's a special need, like the St. Michael's Conference or VBS or the Lincoln Street Chapel. It's also not that no one pledges. Lots of us do. The problem is that our financial worship is not routinely a part of how we think about our life in Christ. It does not have the standing that being present in church has or participating in the liturgy has or taking communion or ministry to one another. It doesn't have that kind of standing. You will often hear excuses about money in church that you would never hear being applied to other areas of Christian life. The word pledge is not in the Bible. Being a Christian is not about money, it's about love. I don't have enough money to matter. You don't understand my circumstances. You never hear those things any place but about money. Silence about financial worship, silence about money, and excuses that change the subject deaden us to the gospel message. And we need to fix that. Let's take a specific example the parable of the prodigal son begins with the appalling request by the younger son for his inheritance. In effect, the son says to the father, give me what I would get if you were dead. The son's first sin is to demand money and property that he has not earned. The sin is compounded by wishing his father dead. Since Jesus means us to see the father as God, the son wishes God dead. The son then turns everything into cash and heads for a far country where he will be in control, in effect, where he will be his own God. What does this shocking act have to do with me, or indeed with any of you? Have we demanded what does not belong to us? What we have not earned? Do any of us wish God dead? This parable is an interesting story, but clearly not applicable to any of us here. These two half-truths illustrate our problem with money and financial worship. Half-truth one, that we have earned all we have. Half-truth two, we don't want God dead. Now, why are they only half-truths? Because they conveniently avoid thinking about all the ways God's gifts have supported our economic lives. For example, look around you. This is a very talented group of people. None of those talents were earned. They were given at birth by God. Our many talents have helped each of us earn a living. We take freedom for granted. Freedom to work as we please is not earned. It is also a gift from God through generations of Americans. The values that strengthen us are gifts as well, from parents, from our church, from our community, and none of these are earned either. What about the important people who have been key to our success in life? Did we earn them? The fact that I have a wife who can strengthen me when I need it and smack me when I need to be corrected is a miracle. <laughs> I certainly have not earned it. What people are crucial to your life and are truly gifts from God to you? Now, just as an aside on this wife point, I realized I'm married far above my station, so I don't need anybody pointing it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, the tally of the unearned goes even deeper for me personally, and perhaps for a lot of you. We came to Boston in 1982. I was president of a venture capital startup. In 1985, after going through $10 million, including money from friends and family, the company failed. I had no job, no severance, and a badly bruised sense of self-worth. Naturally, I started a consulting practice. (laughs) My gallows humor joke from that time that I still like, here's a client speaking to me. So Mike, let me see if I have this right. You just tanked your company, lost a bunch of money, and now you want to help me manage mine. I'm having a lot of trouble seeing why this is a good idea. What am I missing? After three months of not selling much work, the phone rang. It was a division president who had worked for me some years before. He was working on something related to the startup, and he wanted me to come out and see if I could help. The key point is, I did not earn that call. I didn't know where he was or what he was doing. That phone call was not just a gift, it was a minor miracle when I was fairly desperate. Now, what's your story? When did things happen for you that you did not earn? Now, if we are not very careful, We forget all God's gifts that have sustained our work lives, our lives with money, and focus only on what we have done. Now, what we've done matters a great deal. But if we fail to remember what God has done for us in our lives with money, if we don't give praise and thanks and credit those gifts for the importance they have, then we practically commit the same sin as the prodigal son. Give me what I have not fully earned, And let me rule over it, free of God and the gospel narrative. That is half-truth number two. So as the parable opens, we may not have sinned as egregiously as the prodigal has done. But as he heads out of town toward the far country, many of us are right behind him. We want to control the money we have without thinking about God, and especially without thinking about how our financial decisions can separate us from God. And isn't that exactly the definition of sin? separating yourself from God. So God is declared dead. The son is now in control, and things go downhill fast. Money without God doesn't work out so well. In fact, the son is spiritually dead, not the father, confident in his own wisdom and the power of his unearned money to make him God. When all the money is gone, and when even living with pigs isn't working, the son finally comes to himself and turns back toward his father. In other words, he repents. He does not repent when 50% of the money is gone, nor does he repent when 90% of the money is gone. Nothing gets through his poisoned soul until it is all gone. And even then, when every last dime is spent, the son is very slow to turn back toward the father. Read the parable again. It is three more verses and nine lines before he actually starts to think about repenting to his father. Money is a very powerful drug that can separate us from God indefinitely. That is why Jesus spends so much time trying to teach us about money. Now the key question here is how can we repent, turn off the road to the far country before we are in crisis, before we end up in a position where we're so desperate that that's the only thing left for us? God does not require us to be perfect, but we do have to be facing in the right direction. We have to repent and turn around before we face the disaster at the end of the prodigal's road. Now, how this can be done is the heart of building financial worship as a key spiritual discipline for us at Holy Trinity. Now, let's look at the word repent. The word repent occurs three times in the liturgy, repent or repentance. The first time is when the deacon bids confession. Ye who do truly and earnestly repent you of your sins. The second is the confession. When we all pray, we do earnestly repent. Finally, in the priest's absolution, we joyfully hear these words Hath promised forgiveness of sins to all those who with hearty repentance and true faith turn unto Him. Now, in each case, there is a modifier to strengthen the idea of repent. Truly and earnestly repent. Earnestly and hearty repentance. Clearly, repenting. Turning in the right direction is crucial to receiving communion, lifting our sins, and indeed to our whole life in Christ. Repentance is a focal point of our worship every week, and it is not a negative term. It is wonderfully positive. Turning in the right direction is the key to life for us as it is for the prodigal son, and it has to include our financial life. We simply can't turn around if we do not turn our money with us we must develop a definition of weekly repentance that includes the 70% of our life denominated in dollars. If our money life is not part of our repentance, part of acknowledging the need to recognize God's authority in our financial lives, then we will never get off the road to the far country. If we're not going to do that, we might as well hurry on, catch the prodigal, and have a beer at the next way station. So how do we earnestly repent and include our life with money? We pledge weekly. Our pledges should be seen as weekly repentance, weekly acknowledgement of the unearned gifts we have received that sustain us. Pledges should be weekly financial prayers and weekly worship with money, inviting God to instruct us in how we use our money. Weekly repentance means pledging and promising in advance to God the first fruits, not just the leftovers when we happen to be in church. Most importantly, pledging is not a business transaction or dues to a club. Pledging is financial repentance, financial worship, and financial prayer. Those of us who pledge can learn to do it better. Those those of us who pledge can learn to do it better. Those who don't need to start building that discipline of financial worship. And all of us have a long way to go. But the easiest way to turn around to repent is for everyone to pledge. We cannot all pledge the same amount, but we can all pledge and we need to begin today. Here Lucy and Charlie Brown this time. Lucy standing with Linus. We are brother and sister and we love each other. Charlie Brown. You're hypocrites. That's what you are. Do you really think you can fool Santa Claus this way? Why not? We're a couple of sharp kids and he's just an old man. I weep for my generation. As we journey to the far country with the prodigal son and with our familiar excuses for excluding God from our financial life, is our reasoning any better than Lucy's? How confident should we be that we can fool God? And I think we all know the answer. The question is whether we are capable of doing something about it. I know we are, and so do you. Now, what happens when the prodigal son repents? First, The father does all the work of reconciliation and second, the father throws a party. The father runs to the son, an amazingly undignified action for a Middle Eastern head of family, and his response is not to what the son says, it is to his presence. He calls for a robe, a ring, sandals, and a party. For this my son was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. If we can only turn financially in the right direction, God will do wonderful things with us as well. Pledge weekly as worship and as a means of completing the repentance we all strive for in the liturgy, and see what God does with you and your pledge. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be a church with 100% pledging that celebrated that fact? Now, why does the Father throw a party? Also in Luke 15, the shepherd with the lost sheep, when he finds the sheep, he calls for his friends to rejoice the woman with the lost coin. She calls her friends to rejoice when she finds the coin. The rejoicing is a bigger deal for the lost son, but the concept is the same. When the lost is found, we should rejoice individually and as a community. So it is with pledging. Every pledge is an individual commitment to God in advance for weekly repentance, prayer, and financial worship. But a pledge is also a way to build up our church community. And this is very important. It's not the size of the pledge, it's the presence of the pledge. Every pledge, like every person present here today, is a force for evangelism. Every person person present supports the clergy, the choir, our other church members, and strengthens our community, and every pledge does the same thing. The same amount of money given without pledging cannot have the same impact because the weekly, in-advance commitment, whether you were here or not, is not there. If you want to see rejoicing, if you want to have a party, let's have 50 or 60 pledges this year instead of 31, and then see what that does for the church. Pledging is cause for corporate celebration as well as a means of individual prayer, repentance, and worship. Finally, Jesus gives us the elder son, who objects to the party, insults the father, and refuses to come in. In the eyes of the elder son, the prodigal does not deserve the welcome he receives. And he, the elder, has not been showered with the goodies he thinks he deserves for his service. He has earned better. Certainly, part of the lesson here is that God gives grace where he wills and not where we will. But more importantly for financial worship, the elder son shows how easy it is for those of us who are good people and try to do the right thing to sin with money. The elder son's complaint at bottom is that the father has not given him what he deserves in material things. And he is so sure he is right that he gets angry in the street with his father. Can we see ourselves and our money behavior here too? We often get angry you know, about money in church. If so, and I think we should, it makes repentance and financial worship even more of a priority for us. The road to the far country is like the mass pike at rush hour. And the elder son is on that road, too, even though he has never left home. He wants what he has not earned, and he wants God dead and himself in control. Pray with me that we will have the strength and spiritual discipline to turn back from the far country and repent, and that we show that repentance in our financial behavior, and especially in our pledging this year. Glory be to God who has given us salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. Glory to God forever and ever. Amen.